is Jesus loves us, and the Bible tells us that that is so. So, to look at this tonight, we're once again in the book of Colossians, but I thought we needed some perspective on it. So, I wanted to start with a couple of questions. One, how should the Bible in general, and the New Testament letters in particular, be viewed and be read? And secondly, why did God have Paul write this letter to the church at Colossae? So, in answering it, the first question you see I have there, that when we're looking at the Bible, we're dealing with a piece of ancient literature, ancient from our standpoint, and it's also written in a Middle Eastern style. For instance, open up to Colossians 1, verse 1. This is not how any of us write letters. I just wrote a letter to my son who's off at boot camp, and I did not start off with my name. I started off with Dear Nathaniel. That's not how the letters of ancient Middle Eastern time were written. They start off with the name of the author. So the whole style is differently. Secondly, it's not an American Western type of thinking. You know, we Westerners tend to think like going up and down stairs. It's how math works. You learn this principle, and because you learn that principle, you can learn the next principle, and then you can learn the next principle, and then you can learn the next principle. That's not the way God designed the Middle Eastern mind to work. So that's why I've said here it's intentionally direct and subtle at the same time. So when we're looking at the scripture, we need to remember this is not written with an American Western mentality. Not that we can't comprehend it, but we have to remember how to look at it, knowing how, it, therefore, it's going to communicate to us. For example, John Calvin said that the Psalms contain every possible emotion known to man. Here's a quote. This, the quote is not from Calvin, but it's a quote that I heard this week from a man who was teaching on Psalm 90, uh, 79. And he said, in one sentence, I'll give you a summary of the book of Psalms which is this, the Psalms equip us to experience the full range of human emotions that we might be faithful to God's laws as we await our Messiah and take refuge in Him. That's not typically how we think of what the Psalms consist of, but it is indeed what they are. So to start with tonight, go back to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Let's start with verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and return to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, 
so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then verse 10, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So when he says back in verse 8, his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. We need to subject ourselves to the way he gave us his thoughts and the way he gave us his ways and not just say, ah, that doesn't make any sense to me. Well, if it doesn't make any sense to us, we need to work on it until it does make sense to us. So, just as a perspective, this is what we're dealing with when we're looking at the scriptures. In particular, why is it that Paul, that God had Paul write this particular letter of Colossians? I want to suggest three things here. It's a reminder of what's happened to them. There's encouragement in here for what they are doing. And there's protection from what is seeking to deceive and control them. He's reminding them, he's encouraging them, and he's going to protect them. So if you want an overall outline for what's going on in Colossians, it's those three things. And so this week, tonight, we're going to try to get through verse 8. And verse 8 and even the rest of chapter 1, if you will, is going to be still in the reminder aspect. But what we have initially, Paul is remind in verses 3 through 8, Paul is reminding the Colossians about the gospel that they have believed in. So go to Colossians 1, and even though we're going to look at 3 through 8, I'm going to pick up with verse 1 and read verses 1 through 8, the first two paragraphs. So Colossians 1, the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. He's reminding them of what has happened to them. Remember, he's never seen or, nor met the majority of the people at Colossae. There's no indication in Scripture that Paul ever went to Colossae, that he's ever seen them, although Epaphras, who most likely started the church in Colossae, has traveled all the way to Rome and said, Paul, there's some things going on in Colossae that concern me. He gives Paul a report about their walk with the Lord, about their faith, and he gives Paul a report about some problems and some concerns that he has, and that's the occasion for Paul sending this letter back. 
But he starts the letter by essentially saying, let me remind you of the gospel and what it is. So what we have here in these verses 3 through, nine, three through 8, we have the gospel. If you'll notice in the title, I've entitled it Paul's Gospel, but I put the name Paul in quotes because it's not Paul's gospel as though it's his opinion of it, it's his version of it as opposed to Peter's version of it or James' version of it or John's version of it. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord himself communicated it to Paul and Paul is simply reiterating what the gospel is here to the Colossians. So he starts off by saying, we give thanks to God. He doesn't start saying, we're really thankful that you guys have come to Christ. It just blesses our hearts so much that you Colossians have come to Christ. No, he thanks God for what has happened with them. And he thanks, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It looks like in that second phrase that he's indicating that uh, the Father is really superior to the Lord Jesus. In the sense of when Jesus took on flesh and became man, yes, he subordinated himself and became, in a sense, the incarnate Son of God. But when he says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's referring there to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord he is fully equal with God. Does anyone remember exactly how the Great Commission starts? The very beginning of it, the first sentence of the Great Commission. The first time I was asked that question, I correctly quoted the second sentence. The second sentence of the Great Commission is, go therefore and make disciples. Never occurred to me that the therefore was there because it wasn't the first thing in the Great Commission. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 starts with Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. But when Jesus declares that all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, he is showing and declaring how he is God. So, we have Paul and Timothy here because he says we, and so we know from the we, he's referencing Timothy. And remember we talked about Timothy last week, how Paul and Timothy couldn't have been much different by personality, and yet they worked and co-labored together so well. So he says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then we have a lesson in prayer where he says, praying always for you. It appears that they're praying all the time when we read it in English. And not only are they praying all the time, all the time they're praying for the Colossians. Gee, Paul, do you guys ever sleep? Do you ever eat? Do you ever pray for anybody else? So this is when the advantage comes in, in that we're reading it in English. And the way it's constructed in Greek, Paul is literally saying, every time we pray, we thank God for you. Every time we pray, the Lord brings you to mind. And we have great reason because of you to thank God for what has happened in your life. So when he says praying always, it doesn't mean that that's 
all that they ever do, but that when they pray, they're so impressed by the Lord of what's happened with the Colossians that they, are, they give great thanks to God for them. So, praying for you and giving thanks since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Notice that he's referring to their faith in Christ. The word faith literally means to believe in, to trust in, to rely upon. He's acknowledging that their reliance for their spiritual well-being, their reliance for eternity, is not in their faithfulness to read the scripture. It's not in their consistency of prayer. It's not in the good, sweet fellowship that they have with one another, even though those things are all important. But remember, he's telling them about the gospel, and he's letting them know that the gospel is based upon our faith in Christ. Now, right now, every one of you is expressing faith in whatever it is you're sitting upon. Okay? Some of you are on a couch, some of you are in chairs, some of you are on stools. But what's holding, us off, holding you off the floor? Your faith? No. The object of our faith. So whether your faith is really, really strong and you have no hesitation at all about just plopping down in the chair, or whether you're going, I'm not sure this chair will hold me up. Let me test it. Let me look at it. And then you ease yourself into it. Whether our faith is strong or whether our faith is not so strong, it's not our faith that keeps us off the floor. It's the couch. It's the stools. It's the chair. It's the object of our faith. That's what he's reminding the Colossians of here. It is Jesus Christ who saves us. It is Jesus Christ who changes us. It is not based upon the strength of our faith. It is based upon the object of our faith. Our maturity simply comes about as we understand more about him and therefore trust him more. So, a story that I can tell you that my boss first told to me, my boss is from, his wife is from Colorado, and there was a time when he and his wife were visiting some friends of theirs during the wintertime in the mountains of Colorado. And their friends are driving them around up in, the, up in the, the mountains, not the hills. And they go around the corner and here's a lake out next to them and it's frozen. And the guy driving says, hey, Don, do you want to walk on water? Because, you know, it's wintertime and it's frozen. And they're thinking, oh, yeah, let's go walk on water. So there was a place where they could pull off, and they pulled off, and all four of them got out. And so the man and his wife and, and Don's wife just take off onto the frozen lake, and they're 20, 30 yards out there, and Don's going, uh-uh. No way. I mean, he's thinking, they're crazy. That ice could break. So he stayed near the shore. He said he held onto a rock and just kind of gingerly got out there a little bit because if the ice broke, he, he wanted to be holding on to a rock. And then he hears a big truck coming down the road, an 18-wheeler filled with building material. And it comes around the corner, and it turns into this pull-off place near where they were, and he notices there's a ramp. 
and this 18-wheeler filled with building material drives right onto the ice and drives straight across the lake and up on the other side. He said, when I saw that, I stood up and let go of the rock because if the ice can hold this 18-wheeler... So the situation was on the other side of the lake, they were building real expensive homes, but the road to get to the homes was real windy, and so you couldn't take an 18-wheeler up that road with all the building material. So in the wintertime, when the lake froze over, they took these 18-wheelers and hauled all the building materials over on the other side of the lake, and then in the summer the workers came and would build these fancy houses. He said, I wasn't insecure when I'm standing on the ice and holding on to the rock. I was as safe as could be. But because I didn't know the ice, I was frightened and anxious and scared. But when I see a truck drive across the ice, I go, Oh, I guess the ice will hold me. The point of that being, we need to know the ice. We need to know the Lord Jesus, who he is, what he has done more. So that because our faith is in him, he is adequate. He is strong. I remember at the very bottom of the notes here, Colossians is the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus. That's why, that's why I want to you know, make a big point about their faith is in Christ. Not in anything they've done or will do, pro or con, good or bad, positive or negative. But that their faith is in the person and the work and the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he indicates, going on in verse 4, he says, since we heard of your faith in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. He's pointing out that when, when the gospel has invaded our lives, when the Lord has done something in us through Jesus Christ, one of the evidences of it, one of the first evidences of it, will be our love for the other saints our love for one another, our commitment to one another. Now, that doesn't merely mean, oh gosh, I'm just so glad you're here. Let me give you a nice hug on the shoulder. It's not just an emotional attachment or feeling or impulse. Because since I love my sons, there's things I've done to them that they didn't like. I said no. I didn't say no to them on these things because I didn't love them, but because I did. So one expression of love is to say no on occasion. Another expression of love is to be sacrificial. I mean, for instance, Steve and Monique sacrificed for us for us to come here every Friday night and study the Scripture. That is an act of love for us on their part. And so love is not merely, oh, yeah, I'm so glad you're here. But an expression, an evidence of faith in Christ is love for the saints. And then he goes on, your love for all the saints. Um, verse 5. Uh, 
I'm sorry, I messed up in my notes here. So just carry on with me. We're going into verse 5. Your love for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Okay, the words laid up literally mean reserved. There's a reservation for us. You know, when you travel sometimes and we know we're going to be someplace, well, let's call ahead and reserve a room. The Lord has made a reservation for us for eternity in heaven. Remember in John 14, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And the scriptures talk about our inheritance, that we are co-inheritors with Jesus Christ. We are going to inherit every single thing that the Lord Jesus Christ inherits. And it's reserved for us. So we have faith, love, hope. Do you remember in the end of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians? Now abide faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So central to the gospel as far as what happens to us and what happens in us has to do with this triad of faith, hope, and love. And then, I'm sorry I've got it in the notes in verse 4, it's supposed to be in verse 5, where he says, since you heard um, what you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So the word gospel, the Greek word is E-U-A-G-G-L-I-O-N. I don't know how to pronounce it correctly, but it's close to euglion. It's from where we get the word evangel, and it literally means good news. The original usage of it was back in medieval times, back in the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament, when there was a battle, and the battles, battle was over and the winner was determined. A messenger would be sent back to the home country or the home city-state with the good news that they had won the battle. So when he came back with word that they had won, this is what he was called. And because life literally is a spiritual battle, the reason the gospel is called the good news is because the Lord Jesus has defeated the enemy. So our declaring the gospel is declaring the battle's over and Jesus won. Regardless of what we see taking place, Jesus has won. And that's the truth. Verse 6. He says, now this gospel, notice this, has come to you. Very particular wording. You know, though I don't think we mean it improperly, lots of times we say, well, tell me how you came to Christ. And we've always got a story because there's some set of information or relationships or things that have resulted in us coming to faith in Christ. But in reality, we don't come to Christ. 
The gospel comes to us. God brings the gospel to us. He's going to say in a little bit to the uh, Colossians that the gospel came to them from Epaphras, that he was the human means by which, but when we consider the gospel in all literal, in the literal sense, the gospel is something that God brings to us. Hold on to that because that's going to show up again in a moment. So the gospel has come to you, and then he's still talking about the gospel. He goes on and says, just as in all the world, so this is not a gospel just for the Colossians or just for us Americans or just for someone from India or just for someone from Canada or just for someone from fill in the blank. The gospel is not culturally limited. It's the gospel is for the world. It has come to the world and it constantly bears fruit and increases because the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And regardless of what we may see, the gospel will never be quenched and God will always have a remnant of some sort to proclaim his gospel and proclaim the Lord Jesus. As you know, Norm and I went on this trip recently about the Reformation, the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation, and we've, we learned about people before Martin Luther, a couple of hundred years before Martin Luther, who were doing the very thing that we give Martin Luther credit for, the Waldenses. So it's like when Martin Luther did nail his theses to the door and say, let's debate this, the ground had already been prepared in many ways by these other people that we rarely hear about because of this fact that the gospel is, how's it worded here? It's constantly bearing fruit and increasing. That's in all the world. Oh, and then look what he does. Even as it has been doing in you also. But notice this. Since the day you heard it, and understood. The reason I separate those out is because there are many people who've heard the gospel. They've heard it, but they haven't heard it with ears to hear, as the scripture says. Because when a person hears the gospel with ears to hear it, not only do they hear it, but they understand it. And that's what results in salvation. It's not merely knowing the information. It's hearing that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose from the dead. It's understanding that that's what he did for those who put their trust and reliance on him. And it goes on to say, who heard and understood the grace of God. He's really beginning now to bore down into what is literally the core of the gospel. Because the gospel is not just that I believe in Christ. Literally, the gospel is the expression, the presentation of the grace of God. His riches, his mercy, his forgiveness that we do not earn, deserve, or merit. So he says, this gospel has been uh, bearing fruit and increasing in you 
since the day you heard it and understood it, because you heard and understood the grace of God. The gospel, the good news, is the grace of God. And when we put our faith in Christ and rely on Him, we benefit from it because of who He is. And it says you learned it from Epaphras, because God's plan has always been that people would hear of the gospel from someone else. It shows that he is a relational God, and he wants to transfer it, communicate it, multiply it, if you will, by relationship to relationship. So it's proclaiming it to someone whom I know to one degree or another. For them, it was Epaphras. Epaphras' name is going to show up again in chapter 4, verse 12, because he's the one that made the long journey to Rome to say to Paul, I'm concerned about some stuff happening in Colossae. But they learned it from Epaphras, and he describes Epaphras. The reason I put these three things down here about Epaphras is because it's a good model for us to go, oh, how can we be like Epaphras? He was beloved by Paul. That means we are beloved by the Lord Jesus. We are beloved by one another. He was a fellow slave, bondservant, but he wasn't a bondservant of Paul. He was a bondservant and faithful servant of Christ on Paul's behalf. Paul is continually saying the focus and the issue and the person who's important is Jesus Christ. It's not Epaphras. It's not me. It's not Timothy. The person who's important is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is our master. He is the one that we need to recognize that we are his servants. And we can serve him on behalf of one another, but we are his servants. And then he ends it, he says that Epaphras informed us of your love in the Spirit. It's almost as though he's saying the litmus test for the gospel in a person's life is the work of the Holy Spirit expressed by the love that he, that he the Holy Spirit, generates in us for one another. And again, going back to love for one another is not just, all, oh, I love you, you're wonderful, you're great. Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Sometimes the most loving thing we say to someone is, because I love you, I need to say something to you that's hard. Sometimes the most loving thing we say is, because I love you, let me tell you what you've done that is just marvelous, that is so encouraging to me, which is what Paul has done towards the Colossians here in all these verses. He says, your faith in Christ and the work of the gospel in your life has been encouraging to me. I want you to know that that's why I give thanks to God, because of the fruit of the gospel in your lives. So this is immediately how he starts in writing to them. He's got some serious concerns for them because of the report he's gotten from Epaphras about some 
sneaky things that have been oozing into their fellowship. But as far as the Colossians themselves, he commends them. He says, you have been an encouragement to me. You are a reason legitimately for me to be giving thanks to God. So this is what we want to be doing with one another. Encouraging one another, reminding one another to put our faith and reliance and trust in the Lord Jesus. Not merely in our right and godly efforts and actions. But the the supremacy and the sufficiency and the focus of the gospel is Jesus Christ. It's how he presents it to them. And then verse 9, he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it. If you count, in the first nine verses, I believe he uses the word heard three times. What we hear and therefore what we say is important. So we know from verse 9 he's going to make his first transition, but he started off by saying, let me, let, let me remind you the foundation, the basis of all that's going on in your life and the foundation and the basis for even the very reason I'm writing the letter is the good news, the gospel of the crucified, buried, and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your gospel. I thank you for Epaphras having presented it to the Colossians and therefore giving occasion for Paul to remind them of what they heard. I thank you for the understanding that you gave them. I pray that you would help us to understand your gospel with the same clarity that the Colossians did. I pray that you would help us, each one of us, to be a faithful Epaphras, so to speak, in presenting your gospel to the people uh, who come across our paths and whose paths we come across in our regular daily living. I thank you that you end this first section with reminding us of your spirit. I do pray that your spirit would take the things we have looked at tonight and that you through your spirit would teach us. For if your spirit doesn't teach us and impress the the right things upon us, this will all be for naught. So I ask that your spirit genuinely would be the one to remind us, to embed into our minds the things that each one of us needs to hear, possibly differently from these verses that you wrote to the world through the Apostle Paul and the occasion of the little bitty church in Colossae. I pray that your spirit would work in us and that we would show genuine love for one another and for all the saints. That we would pray for one another, that we would encourage one another, that we would speak the truth and speak the truth in love to one another as evidence, as a result of the work that you have done to free us from our sin and transfer us to the kingdom of your beloved Son. We pray these things in his matchless name. Amen. Questions, thoughts, insights? I have a couple of thoughts. I was very struck, uh, start with an observation of our time today and then look back at this ancient text. Is 